0: Welcome to Bentry. we're so grateful that you are here today. Today is Family Sunday, so we've got some kids, I think, in the room. Make some noise, children. Where are you guys at? (laughs) Woo! Yeah! I love it when kids are in the room. I want to welcome all of you online who are joining us and uh, guests in the room as well. We're so thankful to share in this moment together with you. Kids, I want you to know that when I grew up, I grew up in a pastor's home, which meant that my dad was a pastor. Not that it's super different than any other home, except that when we left church, we brought church home with us. We seemed to be always talking about any other PKs in the room. Your dad was a pastor. Okay, a few of you experienced a struggle that I grew up experiencing. It just seemed like we were constantly talking about church or church members were always coming over uninvited, but just always there. Uh, But we loved it. And usually they say that pastor's kids never want to go into ministry or will actually end up turning their back on the church because they've seen the good, the bad, and ugly of ministry. And I've seen, even when I, when I grew up, you know, the not-so-good side of ministry, but not to the point of ever resisting the church of Jesus or resisting the call of God on my life for ministry. And partly, I think, because my dad was an amazing pastor, He was always kind and mild-tempered and considerate, just a true shepherd and still today at the age of 69, beautifully, passionately leading a church here in the Allen area. But I have heard of stories from friends of mine and others who grew up in churches that were constantly fighting. People who have left the church or even a version of the faith that was embodied in the church because people couldn't get along, bickering and gossiping and even some churches who experienced violence, the last place you would ever think you would see those things. Man, it grieves my heart when I see churches fall apart. And these churches were notorious for splitting, not because of a missional desire to reach unbelievers, but because they couldn't get along. The truth is that churches under pressure can either fall apart or bond together. Churches under pressure can either fall apart or bond together together. One of the beautiful things I've experienced here at Bentry since we've come is to meet a lot of you who have been here for a long, long time, 20 years, 30, 35, even 40 years you have been here. This has been your church, and through good times and bad, to thick and thin, you have bonded together. That is what makes us strong. As Peter is now coming towards the end of First Peter that we'll wrap up next weekend. Peter begins chapter five having a family conversation, having a family talk with the churches that he's writing to. These churches are are going through suffering 21 times in this letter that we've been in now for the last nine weeks. Peter has talked about pain and suffering. And if you know anything about suffering, suffering sometimes can bring the best out of people, but suffering can also bring out the worst in people. When you are suffering and when you're under pressure, tempers can flare and accusations can fly and, and pride can soar. And this church was no different under the persecution and the suffering that they were under. It was very possible under the strain of pressure they could fall apart. And usually most new startup religions when they would go through this kind of things that this first century early church went through they wouldn't make it. They would fall apart, they would cease to exist. They would also crumble, but not this church. These churches in Asia Minor, these churches all over first century in the midst of the hardest moments and the toughest pressure, they endured, they persevered, and they thrived. How come? We're not probably today experiencing the kind of pressure and suffering they did in terms of persecution but pressure is inevitable for any church. Pressure of some sort, some kind, can be a part of our story. And how is it that when we are under pressure, with our church and our leadership, when we are under pressure, how do we not come unglued, but thrive and even survive? Peter would say to us in 1 Peter 5, there's two critical things needed for churches to stay together under pressure. First of all, Christ-like leadership And Christ-like humility. Christ-like leadership from elders, pastors, those in positions of influence. And Christ-like humility from the body. And when these two things meet, nothing is impossible. So here's what Peter would say to us in 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1 to 4. Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder... And a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory." Now, you might read this verse and think, well, this is a passage more suited for a pastor's conference or a meeting with the elders. Why would you unpack this passage on a Sunday morning? Because most of you may not call yourself an elder or a pastor or a shepherd of a church. But I didn't want to gloss over or skip over this text. Because I think it's important for you, the people that been, even those that are visiting and just checking us out, to know what it is that God requires of your leaders, what God requires of elders and shepherds and pastors here at Bentree, also so that you can hold us accountable to God's job description, His description of the kind of life that we are to live before you. You see three highlighted words here, elders, shepherds, and overseers, and really in the New Testament there are key Three words that would describe the role of a pastor, elder, pastor, and bishop. Elder is the Greek word presbyteros. It's where we get the word presbyterian. Bishop is the word episkopos. It's where we get the word episcopalian. And pastor, when you put all three together, you get Bentry Bible fellowship. You really do. (laughs) But the New Testament describes one office with three words, elder, pastor, and bishop. They're the same office, the same individual, but three words to describe the same office. Not three different offices, but one Role, one office. You can actually say that these three unique words, used interchangeably to refer to elders and pastors, refer to various responsibilities or part of the nature of that role. Some would say, well, elder refers to the, the responsibility of guarding and governing, or even spiritual maturity. Others would say the role of pastor describes this call to shepherd and this pastoral care that you would have. Some would say, well, the word bishop describes oversight and leadership. And all of those three are true. So we're going to unpack how Peter here writes to fellow elders. So let's look at verse 1 again, First Peter chapter 5, verse 1. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. I want you to pay attention to the word fellow elder. This is the apostle Peter speaking. He was one of the original twelve that were the disciples of Jesus. Not only was he one of the twelve, he was one of the three in the inner circle with Jesus. This is a Peter that walked on water. This is the Peter that was the first to receive the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. This is a Peter that preached on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people were saved. Peter is one of the few remaining individuals who have walked shoulder to shoulder with Jesus. He has already been revered by the pastors he's writing to. But notice that when he writes to these elders and pastors in the first century, he doesn't describe himself as someone in the higher echelon of leadership. He just says, I'm a fellow elder. What humility! This is a humility that Peter will call all of us to later. I'm just a fellow elder. He is leveling the playing field and said, I've been gifted just like you are. You have been called just like I am. We are fellow elders. Here at Bentry, there are nine elders of which I am just one of them. These are called by God, gifted men and women who have been called to be elders, to govern, guard, and guide our church. There are people who love God. Committed to the well being of our church. Amazing people. At Venture, we also have an incredible group of pastors, staff leaders, staff pastors, who are leading the mission and ministry of our church. And of them, I'm just one of them. I get to serve you as lead pastor, but there is an incredible group of men and women who are pastoring this church together because at the end of the day, I'm just one person. And we have a pretty fairly large church, and God has brought together an amazing group of pastors to lead and shepherd our church. And the truth is that some of our pastors have unique gifts and experiences that I don't have, and we need the diversity of gifts and personalities and how God has uniquely wired us to lead us into the future here together. But let me broaden this a little bit more. Some of you sitting in this room or watching online, you serve as group leaders, life group leaders or Bible study leaders. Some of you serve in our children's ministry and you're teaching kids and you're discipling students and you're a group leader for HSM or middle school student ministry. You may carry some kind of a spiritual leadership role in some part of our church. And I'm so thankful for you. I've heard it said that the church is never built on the gifts of a few but on the sacrifices of many. And God has brought together individuals who carry your heart for the church. And so although this passage is directly written to elders and pastors of a local church, I think what Peter has to say here applies to any of us who are leading some aspect of our church or we're in some spiritual leadership here at Bentry or wherever you may be serving. So Peter says this to those who are serving in spiritual leadership. Verse two, Peter says, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. The word shepherd or the role of a shepherd is incredibly prominent all across the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, God describes himself as being our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And in the Old Testament, the Old Testament priests were given the call, the responsibility to be God's shepherd. And when they failed, God would call them into accountability and describe the way he shepherded people and the way that these unfaithful shepherds shepherded people. And in the New Testament with pastors and elders, God does the same thing. We are called to be temporary shepherds of the church. Why? Because Peter says, this is God's flock. This isn't the lead pastor's church. This isn't the elder's church. This is God's church. We together form the flock of God, the people of God. We have been charged with the responsibility of shepherding this church. The call to shepherd is a call to tend, to feed, to nurture, to nourish, to protect, to guide. The Bible talks about shepherds bringing healing to the wounded sheep, bringing strength to the weak ones, to bring back strayed sheep who have gone away. And Isaiah 53 actually says, all of us like sheep have wandered away. And it's a call to say, let's be a part of nurturing, caring, loving people. I imagine when Peter had this idea of God, you've called me to be a shepherd. I think maybe he was going back to John 21 when Peter is on the beach with Jesus and having breakfast, Peter has been filled with such guilt and shame because he has just denied Jesus three times. But Jesus comes to Peter on that beach and Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And every time he responded with that, Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Be a shepherd to my people. Take care of my lamb. I think Peter would say, because I have been restored by Jesus, I get the privilege of walking with people. It is a privilege, not an entitlement, but a privilege to shepherd, to lead, to guide, to be a part of being used by God to care for people. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Let me pause there, as God would have you. The Greco-Roman world would say, this is how you lead. Our human nature will say, this is how you lead. But Peter says, no, 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 lead as God would have you, not as culture would have you, not as the latest leadership book would have you, no, as God himself would lead you. There is a unique, distinctive way in the Christian faith to lead, to serve. No matter where we're serving, there is a unique way to serve in that capacity as God would have you. Meaning as he led us and as he served us. Peter was in the room with Jesus when Jesus called his followers together. And here Jesus would say in Mark chapter 10, Jesus called them over in verse 42, over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. Not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. Jesus looks at his followers and says, this is what you're used to. This is a culture you're used to. This is what you've been surrounded by. People using their position, their influence to gain to lord over others, but I'm calling you to give, to serve others. In the kingdom of God, we are not called to be overlords, we are called to be servants. You may be in a classroom setting where you're leading, in a home where you're leading, in a boardroom where you're leading, in a hospital, but wherever you are, this is a distinct way of Christian leadership. You may be surrounded by a, a cutthroat environment Full of backstabbing and unethical behavior just to get ahead. You may be surrounded by a dog eat dog culture where people are harmed for the sake of climbing the corporate ladder, but Jesus would say to all of us, not so among you. Be different, be set apart, set a new tone of leadership, set a new tone of culture. You are here to serve because the first will be last and the last shall be first. This is how we serve. Peter says, serve not out of compulsion, but willingly. Not out of greed, but eagerly. In first century, just as there are people today entering ministry for self-interest and gain, for popularity, for mere influence, Peter says, no. You do it because you love Jesus. Don't pollute the sacred work. The sacred work calls for a selfless heart. First to serve, first to give, not looking to gain, but to serve. Peter says, you don't lord it over people, but you lead with example. You lead as an example. So we don't lead simply by what we say, but how we live. That's the greatest leadership, not simply one that's taught, but caught. So we live in and through the example of how we live. Not to say that pastors and and leaders are always perfect, but that we want to live an example of grace to you, a grace that embraces us as fully as we are and a grace that enables us to fully lead as God calls us to, empowers us by his spirit. We want to lead with examples. And any moment, you don't see that from us or any leaders. You have a biblical responsibility to lovingly call us out because the scriptures call for us to lead with example. There was a flight that was about to take off from Sacramento, California, and the flight was delayed. Everybody had boarded the flight. And, you know, as you can imagine, there's a technical difficulty, which I think is just a word that they use to say we can't leave on time. And so... the stewardess got on the phone and said, hey, everyone, thanks for getting on the plane, but we're going to be stuck for a while, probably about an hour or so. Feel free to get up, get back to the turnable, turn, uh, terminal, walk around, do what you need to. So everybody in the plane got up and off the plane, except for one person. This man was by the name of Keith, and he was a blind guy. And he chose to stay seated And the pilot actually knew him, because right in front of Keith was his, was his seeing eye dog, because Keith was blind. So the pilot knew Keith and said, hey, Keith, we're going to be here for about an hour. Do you want to walk around and get a break from sitting down? We'll be here for a little while. And Keith says, no, 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 I think I'm going to just stay put, but I think my dog would like to go on a walk. So the pilot agreed to take the seeing eye dog on a walk. Now imagine all of the, you get the picture? Everybody on the flight is outside on the terminal They're about to see the pilot walking with a seeing eye dog, and just for fun, the pilot puts on some sunglasses. Oh yeah, he puts on a pair of shades, and he comes out of the flight walking with a seeing eye dog. You can imagine the response of the people. They quickly went to the front desk because I gotta change my flight. I can't get some even went as far as changing the airline completely because nobody wants to fly on a plane with a blind pilot. Nobody. The moment that our pastors and our elders, when we cease to lead through example, we become the blind pilot, and no one wants to follow them. But I want you to know that the elders and pastors here are godly people. They love God. They love their families. They love you. They love our church. They are committed to the well-being of our church. We don't just practice what we preach. We only want to preach what we're already practicing. That is a heartbeat. And I'm asking you, if you ever see me behave in a manner that is not Christ-like, tell me. If you ever see me treat my wife or my kids or somebody in our church that is not becoming of a Christian, you need to tell me. If my heart is ever prideful and if I ever turn away from serving Christ and serving others, I need you to correct me. We are called to live as examples to the body of Christ. This is a serious matter. There are to be no disconnection between our preaching and our life. Peter says, lead, live and lead with example. Peter would go on in verse four, to say there's a reward awaiting for those who serve Christ's church, to serve the flock of God. And Peter would say in verse four, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Jesus called himself the good shepherd, and Peter was there to hear that. But Peter says, Jesus is better than just a good shepherd. He is the best shepherd. He is the chief shepherd, and he is still shepherding. He is still guiding. He is still nurturing. And all of us who are broken, we come to Jesus, and he is our shepherd. That is so comforting to me. Know that it's not on my shoulders to carry our church, but Jesus is ultimately the chief shepherd of our church. In the first century, it was common when a flock of sheep got too large to be well attended to by one shepherd, he would have under-shepherds. So he would remain the chief shepherds, and he would have a group of shepherds that assisted him in caring for the the needs of the flock. And here Peter says, Jesus is the chief shepherd, and anyone called into positions of spiritual leadership, we are simply the under-shepherds. Meaning, Christ is not only our example, We will be accountable to Jesus. He is our boss. We are responsible to Christ Jesus. The writer of Hebrews would say it like this. Hebrews 13 verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them since they they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they can do this with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. One day, I will stand before Jesus, the chief shepherd, and give an account of my ministry, of my life, how I led the decisions I made. And on that day, I want nothing more than to be found faithful. We will give an account to the chief shepherd. There's an old legend about an old shepherd a young boy and a flock of sheep and a donkey. It can only be good if all those people are involved. Old man, a young boy, a donkey and a flock of sheep. And this shepherd is walking from one village to the next. So when he gets to the first village, he is walking next to the donkey. So the people of that village said, you're a foolish man, you should be riding on that donkey. Why are you not riding on the donkey? Get on that donkey. So the shepherd gladly got on the donkey and went to the next village. Well, the people in that town said, such a cruel man, he's he's riding on the donkey, but this young boy is having a walk. Put the boy on the donkey. So the shepherd got off the donkey and put the young boy on the donkey and got to the next village, the third village, and the people of that village said, this child is so lazy, and this old man is letting this child be lazy. They should be riding on the donkey together. So the old man and the young boy started riding on the donkey and get to the fourth village. And the people of that fourth village said, cruelty to the donkey. This donkey is having to carry the weight of two human beings. How cruel of this man. So the last time the shepherd was seen, he was carrying the donkey and the child, just walking. (laughs) He didn't know what else to do. Can I tell you, that's kind of what pastoring feels like in the 21st century, especially through a a pandemic. You just can't please everybody, right? That's true. So here's what I want you to know. There are going to be moments where I may disappoint you. I'm not trying to, but I may disappoint. I may make somebody really happy, and I may make somebody unhappy. But here's what I want you to know. My eyes are on the chief shepherd. At the end of the day, I will appear before him. And I want to be found faithful. I love it when you encourage me and say, great sermon. Keep them coming. I need encouragement just like anybody else do. But what's more important than hearing great sermon is one day to hear from Jesus. Well done, servant. And that should be the aim of all of our lives. There is a day coming when we appear before Jesus. Peter says, on that day when you meet the chief shepherd, you will receive the crown of glory. The crown of glory. In the Roman day, there would be what's called a laurel wreath. It was a wreath of leaves. And in the midst of athletic competitions or military conquests, when somebody won, they were given a wreath of leaves. A bowl of salad, pretty much. (laughs) That was what the crown was. But in a week or so, these leaves would fade. But Peter says, there is a different crown awaiting you. It's an unfading crown of glory, one that never fades. The Bible talks about at least four or five different crowns that are awaiting a believer. The crown of rejoicing, the crown of righteousness, the crown of life, and even this crown of glory. For different reasons, they're given to people, a crown awaiting you. And Paul would say like this in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Don't you know that the runners in our stadium all raise, but only one receives a prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now, everyone who competes exercises self control in everything, they do it to receive a perishable crown. But we, an imperishable crown. Believers in Jesus are running this race not for a perishable crown, not for one that will fade, but an imperishable crown that's already awaiting us in Christ Jesus. And what Paul is saying every crown of human glory will fade. Every accolade, every achievement that you are stressing over and trying and striving for, they will all one day pale and they will wither and they would fail. But this crown of glory, this crown of righteousness that Jesus is waiting to give to his followers is the only crown worth pursuing. It's the only crown worth waiting for. And Christ has already done the hard work to give us this crown. We're in line waiting for this crown. This has been the theme all throughout 1 Peter where Peter was saying, I know it's hard. The race is difficult. You want to give up but endure, Christian because your goal is the glory of God that you will see at the appearing of Jesus. Yes, it's painful. You may feel like an exile, but dawn is coming and it surely will come. Christ will come. You will receive the inheritance of your faith. You will see him glorified and you joining in his glory. There is a crown awaiting you. There is. So believers, endure. Pastors, be faithful. Churches, persevere for this crown that's waiting you. Now Peter will speak to the rest of the church. And he says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Notice he uses the word in the same way. Because no matter your position, no matter your influence, in the same way live, live willingly, live with eagerness. Live not to lord your influence, because everybody's got an influence. You're in some position of power or influence, but use it to serve people in the same way that pastors and elders are called to lead as shepherds under the great chief shepherd. We live like this together in the same way. Those who were younger, usually in the first century, the elders were older than the rest of the church. They had walked with Jesus a long time, and the rest of the church were younger. So when he says those who are younger, he's really speaking to the rest of the church. Or even perhaps some would say, those younger in the faith, follow the leadership of the elders. And then he says, all of you, regardless of age or experience or positions or titles, everybody do this. Clothe yourselves with humility. I think it's fascinating. Peter spends the first four verses speaking directly to elders and leaders, and then one verse calling us all to the same action of humility. What is it that keeps a church together under pressure? Christ like leadership and Christ like humility, embodied by everyone. That's the secret. That's how you stay together, that's how you bond together in midst calamity and amidst trials and suffering and pressure it's humility next week we're going to be closing this series looking at the rest of this text where Peter calls us to be humble under the mighty hand of God it's a vertical humility how we live humble lives under God but here he's not calling us to live humble under God he's calling us to live humble towards each other Isn't that fascinating? We're good with the vertical humility. I can be humble before God. But Peter says, no, no, no. Actually, you also need to be humble toward one another. Horizontal humility. Clothe yourselves with humility. The word clothe is super interesting. It's a rare word. And it speaks of the aprons that servants would wear over their regular clothes when they assume the posture of service. Literally, slaves and servants would put on an apron when they got ready to serve. So Peter says, clothe yourself, everybody, with what? With the apron of humility. Peter was there when Jesus got up from the table at the Last Supper. He removed his outer garment and wrapped himself in a towel stooped low to wash the feet of disciples, a job reserved only for the lowest slave. And in that moment, Jesus was dressed in the apparel of a slave, a long inner garment with towels wrapped around. Jesus was clothed with humility. Paul would say in Philippians 2, the God-man, Jesus, who was fully God, emptied himself. And he took on... The appearance of a servant. The likeness of humanity. And what did God do? God became man. And not only that, he died. Not only that, he died on a cross. The most humiliating, humbling death. Jesus went from one degree of humility to the next until he could go no further. This is what it looks to. Clothe yourselves with humility. And here's what Peter is saying, all of us in church world, and non-church world, let's be a people defined by the humility that Christ beautifully embodied. Humility was not a virtue in first century. It was a vice. In first century, the virtue was self-aspiration, self-promotion, self-confidence, self-aggressiveness. Those are the things that people looked up to and said, that's what we need. Humility was only reserved for people who had been conquered Only conquered slaves and enemies were called to be humble. But Peter says, no, no, no. The way to victory is to be clothed in humility. The way to victory is to clothe yourself in humility. When personalized license plates first came out, it was said that in Illinois, thousands of people requested for the personalized license plate that read number one. (laughs) Hope that's not one of you. They requested number one. So the official, the state official who was in charge of granting these personalized license plates says, this is so unfair. I don't want to give one person the word number one and then leave thousands disappointed. So he decided to solve the problem by taking that license plate for himself. So he is driving around with the plate number one. It's part of human nature, isn't it? Peter says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. The quickest way to be resistant in God is for pride to take over. He resists the pride. But he gives grace to the humble. Pride says, my thoughts have to be number one. My voice has to be number one. My opinions are better than everybody else's. I'm right, and I don't care what it does to you. I need to be proven right. Pride. God resists pride. But on the flip side, he gives grace to the humble. He's already been gracious to us. He has already poured upon us one degree of grace to the other. But Peter is saying he's got more grace to give. When you assume a posture of humility, wanting to serve other people, fighting for peace, longing for righteousness, God keeps grace flowing He says, I don't have to resist you. I can pour abundantly grace on your life. Grace upon grace. Humility is so critical in church community because it's pride that says, I got Jesus. I don't need anybody else. I can live in isolation. I can take my personal faith and live a private life. I don't need to be interdependent. I'm independent. Pride says, other people don't need what I have and I don't need what other people have. But humility says, I need to be in a group. I need to be connected. I am interdependent. Other people have gifts that I need. I may have gifts of service that other people need. We need each other to be this body, this deeply connected, interdependent body of Christ followers. You've heard the definition for humility, and it's a good one. That says humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's a good one. I think Peter has something even better to say because in the words of Peter, Peter is not defining humility by how often or how often you don't. Think of yourself. He's actually defining humility by how often you think of Jesus. Humility ultimately, Christian humility, is not about how often you think of self. It's about how often you think of Jesus. So here's the definition I want to give to you. Humility is not a stream of self-consciousness. It's A stream of Christ consciousness. It's not a stream of self-consciousness, but Christ consciousness. Think about how Peter introduced himself in verse 1 of chapter 5 when he says, This is me, Peter, a fellow witness of the sufferings of Christ, one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Peter's not defining himself by his wins or his failures. He had a lot of wins and he had a lot of failures. He said, no, 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 when I think about who I am, none of those actually matter. But all that matters is that I got to see Christ suffer. I saw him be rejected and humiliated. I saw him be rejected by those who were closest to him, including me. But I got to see Christ suffer so I can embrace pain and suffering because Christ suffered. And so when I am filled with my self-conscious and me wanting to protect my rights and privileges, no, no, no. I can be embodied with the presence of Jesus A Christ-conscious. And I, along with you, Peter says, we are waiting together, longing to share in the glory yet to be revealed. So my glory is in my own. My glory is deeply interconnected, tied up with the glory of Jesus. So I'm not trying to pursue my fame, my desires, my titles, my achievements. No, no, no. I am already glorious in Christ, and I am longing for Christ appearing. My glory is in Christ's glory. Glory. Humility isn't self-consciousness, Christ consciousness. I know full well that I am not the fountain of all wisdom. So every Thursday, I gather with some of our staff and go through the passage together. Some of our pastors, our teaching collaboration team. And every Thursday, it's a beautiful moment because I see things through them that I would have never seen on my own. And this week, Joanne, as she was processing this text with me, said, you know what? Pride is to resist But humility is to rest. I just love that. Pride is resisting, but humility is resting. This week, as you're gathered around your Thanksgiving table with friends, family, maybe by yourself, I don't know what your Thanksgiving is gonna look like, you can rest in humility. Regardless of what you have or don't have, regardless of the gap you feel with where you are and where you wanna be, you can rest. Christ's suffering for you and his victory for you. Your glory tied with the victory of Jesus. You can rest when you see that gap of where you want to be, where you, you wish you were. Oh, this is a perfect opportunity for grace to fill it. If there was no gap, there'd be no opportunity for grace. We can trust in humility. We can rest in humility. Saying, God, I don't have it all. And I'm okay with that. Because our primary identification, Christ suffered, he rose, he's coming back. Maybe you're here today and you've been resisting God for a while. Maybe pride that's told you, I can do this on my own. I don't need an outside help. I've got this. I can fix myself up. I can rearrange my behavior. I can get out of this addiction. I can fill the void I feel in my own heart. Can I just invite you to humility? Will you rest in Christ? Because you can't. You can't fix yourself. You can't mitigate your own shame and behavior. But Christ paid the sacrifice that you and I were owed. And any person who by faith turns their heart to Christ and says, Jesus, I need you. We can ultimately rest in the saving grace of God. So this Thanksgiving week, I'm inviting you just to rest. Try to resist, but humility rest. Be filled with Christ consciousness. As you interact with family members, you don't quite enjoy being around as you plan, as you prepare, filled with the mind of Jesus. Let him do that. Church family, as we step into our future together, I believe God's got an amazing journey for us that requires Christ-like leadership and Christ-like humility from all of us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for gathering us today. The fact that we are here in this moment is a sign of grace. God, we have been humbled enough to say that we need the gathering of people. We need to be connected. We need each other. We need to grow in our faith. We want to pursue Christ together. So thank you for just those that are connected online or in person that there is already humility at work saying we need your word. Father, will you deepen our humility? Would you erode our pride for our leaders, pastors, elders, staff members? Help us to live. Willingly, eagerly to please Jesus, our chief shepherd for all of us together to daily put on the apron of Christ so that the humble Christ in us is serving the world through us. To set a new tone, a new culture around us of humility, of serving, knowing that our job titles do not excuse us from serving other people. No, no, no. All of us are invited into Christ-like servanthood. Oh, may we be marked by that kind of church. A church that resists pride, but embraces humility at all levels. We need your grace to do this, God. So we assume a posture of humility so that we can live out and experience, receive grace. For anybody here today who is far from Jesus, may today be the day to come into a knowing relationship, a saving relationship with Jesus, to say, God, I no longer resist you, but I yield my life by faith. Say, Christ, you died, you rose, I want a new life. May this be the moment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Can we thank God together for God's word? Amen. If you're here today and you've got some next steps to take, Matt's gonna tell you how to do that online, but right across this room, there is a prayer room and a welcome center. If you've got some needs going into Thanksgiving week that are stressing you out, that just worries and burdens you're carrying, meet us in the prayer room. We will love a few moments and minister to you specifically and pray with you. If you're new here, need to know your next steps or pick up a a bundle of rave cards, I'm so excited for December 4th to pursue our community. So take advantage of these invite cards and let's share life together. God bless you. Have a great rest of the day.